0: Hello everyone. I hope you're doing well. My name is Brennan. I'm the worship and young adults pastor here. Um, let's just jump into the sermon, okay? Enough with the intro. We are we're in the middle of a series on uh, the book of Galatians, where we're walking through the book, and uh, that will take us about to the end of May. So just a small encouragement. You know, as we're walking through this book, uh, I just want to encourage you to be reading Galatians on your own. You know, take the time to really let it soak in to your heart, so that the teaching on Sunday is paired with your own experience in God's word and so that God's word really just soaks into your heart and mind. That's you know why we do this series is because we want you to understand um, these passages. We want that to be in your heart and we want to understand God's word and really let it change us. So that's just small encouragement. So we're going to be going over uh, Galatians 3 1 to 14. I'll give you a quick recap of the context of the letter uh, and then the context of Galatians 3 specifically. So Galatians was written by Paul who traveled around to tell people about Jesus and start churches. Um, and Galatia was just one of those areas that Paul went to and preached the gospel and people believed and came to Jesus. So Paul then, you know, traveled around and then ended up writing most of the New Testament books, which are the letters that he wrote to the churches to encourage them, to teach them the way of Jesus, and to uh, correct them and yeah, teach them how to live like Jesus. Galatians is one of those letters. What, uh, what caused Paul to write the letter, um, if you haven't been around for the rest of the series or, or forgot, because I know I have a short-term memory, so I need a reminder. Um, the reason why Paul wrote this was because the Christians in Galatia were convinced by this group of Jewish Christians called the Judaizers that they had to follow um, all the laws of the Old Testament to be a Christian. The Old Testament is all the books of the Bible before the time of Jesus. So there there was just a lot of laws given by God for the Israelites to follow, like circumcision, not eating pork or other dietary laws, or like Sabbath. And there was a lot of other ones, but those were kind of the main ones that uh, the Jewish people held very highly. And there is still, of course, great value in the Old Testament, great teaching that is um, valuable for us today. But the laws that the Judaizers were um, forcing people to to do to follow. You know, they had their place in time, but were now fulfilled by what Jesus did. Jesus said, "I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them." So, there are laws that are being that have been fulfilled by what Jesus did. So that what the Judaizers were doing was working backwards, like kind of undoing what Jesus did, really. They were still dividing Jewish and non-Jewish believers and they were putting this weight of following all these rules on people's back. And, you know, we'll get into that more. So, Anyway, Paul was in Galatia. he preached the gospel, uh, and then he left, and the Judaizers came sometime after and told these Christians that they had to be circumcised, follow all the laws of the Old Testament to be saved. And they were also undermining Paul and like badmouthing him in his teaching, because um, yeah, because they wanted to teach something different. So we are starting in chapter three, where Paul begins his main argument. So if you have your Bible, you can turn into Galatians chapter three. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV translation. Verse 1 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Okay, so Paul, starting off a little strong, pretty much just calling them dumb, really. You know, pretty clearly he's just calling out their lack of wisdom in this area, calling them foolish people. Then Paul says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. It is, it is believed that Paul is, you know, saying like, when I came to you, I preached the gospel and I preached Jesus Christ crucified. They didn't, you know, see Jesus crucified. They were in a different region. But how Jesus was portrayed by Paul when he shared the good news of Jesus um, was that Jesus was crucified because that's what happened, right? Um, Paul is emphasizing the crucifixion of Jesus because the very essence of the gospel is that Jesus had to die for us. He had to be crucified for our sins because we could not live up to the standard of the laws of the Bible. And the standard, and that is the standard for a perfect relationship with God. Okay, of course, Jesus also rose from the dead, and that is equally important. But here Paul is emphasizing the crucifixion and the death of Jesus because it is precisely because of our failure, of humanity's failure and Israel's failure, to live up to the laws of the Old Testament that Jesus had to die. There was no other way for us to be put in right standing before God. So Paul's reminding Galatians of Jesus' death because if we could have got to God and earned our salvation by ourselves, by following the laws, then Jesus would have, been, Jesus would have died for nothing. His sacrifice would be unnecessary. These Galatians are moving backwards and not forwards in their faith with, with Jesus by trying to uphold these laws, especially the ones that Jesus fulfilled and are now just empty. So verse two says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So Paul in this verse is just bringing the Galatians back to their spiritual roots, asking them um, a rhetorical question because he knows the answer. You know, when you received your relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit was working through you, was that because of what you did or just because of your faith? And uh, this verse also infers that there's probably some significant, memorable moment of the Holy Spirit moving in some way, as there was a lot in the book of Acts. Um, So, anyway, just also a quick note on uh, the Holy Spirit. If you haven't been around church very long, you might have uh, heard this, but just be confused (laughs) what that means, who that is. Um, So, if you have heard people say the Trinity or the Holy Trinity, uh, that refers to God, that is one God. In uh, and also three distinct persons. So it doesn't mathematically line up. Don't try to make it fit into, uh, into our understanding. But this is how God is taught in the Bible. And God is, of course, just beyond our understanding and, and what we can comprehend. But it's just one of those things we have to go, okay, we believe this to be true, uh, but we do not understand it. That's just the reality of some things of God. So one God is who we believe in, but Father, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So there's this unity of God, uh, while still having three distinct persons. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit or Spirit, or in some church traditions, maybe before my time, the Holy Ghost, uh, which is kind of I don't know, it sounds funny to me, but uh, <laughs> ooh spooky, but also good. Um, here's <laughs> uh, he is the person that is God's presence. So because. Of what Jesus did, the Holy Spirit can now be united with people that accept God. And it is through the Spirit working that we interact with God. And it's God's Spirit that comforts us and guides us and transforms our hearts to be more like Jesus. So that is the role of the Spirit. Um, And of course, you could have a whole sermon on just explaining more about the Holy Spirit. But in case you don't know, when we say Holy Spirit, that's who we are talking about, is the one person of the Trinity. Okay, so. When you accept Jesus and begin a relationship with him, you receive the Spirit. You receive God's presence. So Paul is asking the Galatians, when that happened, was it because you worked for it or because you believed and accepted Jesus and that was all? And that's a rhetorical question. Paul was there. Okay, he knows it was just because of their belief. He knows we can't work ourselves to Jesus. He knows the Galatians would remember the moment they received the Spirit and how they did nothing to earn it. Okay, so the next verse. Says, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So, just like the original work of salvation is a gift and a work of the Spirit, so is the continual progress of spiritual maturity. Okay, it it is all a gift from the Spirit, it's all a gift from God. It doesn't make sense to accept God out of faith and then after just try to work hard to then earn it or become more like God from our works. Okay, now that's the main focus of today's message, but I'm going to end with this topic of, of faith and works. You know, where's the balance? What is Paul saying here? And, and what do we read in other parts of the Bible? And um, yeah, we're just going to come back to it. We're going to end with that. Right now, we're just going to keep going verse by verse so that we can have a good understanding of these verses that we're looking at today. So verse four, have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? Um, so that's what the NIV says. The New American Standard Bible says, did you suffer so many things in vain if it indeed was in vain? Okay, so there's differences in different translations, and uh, that's because translating an ancient language probably is difficult. I, I wouldn't know, but I can, I can guess that it's difficult, which is why uh, things change between different translations of the Bible. You know, if you You've been around. You've probably heard us say NIV, NLT, ESV. Those are all different English translations. Same original language Bible that's copied over and over, exactly the same, and passed down. That doesn't change. But how people try to translate into different languages changes. Um, You know, into different ways it can be understood in English. Uh, In the original language, you know, there's things that mean different things, or just words that don't have an equal in English. So translators are often just doing their best to bring that to modern English. And languages change so much over time. An example of this is uh, last month, I went to a new movie called uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth, obviously about Macbeth. It was uh, made by the smaller studio, which I love, called A24. You know, like I'm not really a, a Shakespeare fan, but. I like the studio, it was in black and white, and cool like aspect ratio, and directed by one of the Coen brothers, and I'm a movie nerd, so I love that stuff. It was shot incredibly, I thought it looked great, but I went and I probably max understood like 10% of what they're saying. Max, okay, That's, that's giving myself like, I don't wanna make myself look too bad. Okay, honestly, maybe less. And because I read Macbeth in high school, uh, so I knew the story. But if I didn't know the story, I don't know if I would know what was going on at all. Like, at all. And to give myself credit, I don't remember struggling that much in high school. So I think reading is a little easier. You see the words. You can kind of piece together a sentence that makes sense to you. But when it's spoken, it's just like, there, and then it's gone, and it's fast. And you just can't keep up, and it's ridiculous. It's brutal, okay? So, yeah, I couldn't tell what these people are saying. And honestly, it made me think, this might be a hot take, let's leave Shakespeare behind. You know, it's just time to let it go. It's been 400 years. Have we not found other authors since then? And like, or just translate it into modern English. Like I, as an adult, if I struggle with this, I think it's just cruel to make kids do this. They're children. We're torturing our children for no reason. Can I get an amen from the high school students? Yeah, okay. But here's my point. Macbeth was written just over 400 years ago. Uh, so think about how English has changed that much then. Now, times that by five, that gets you to 2,000 years ago, which is about the time of Jesus and the time that these letters were written and, um, yeah, the time of the early church. So imagine how much languages change then, over 2,000 years. It's now no—it's an ancient language. No one talks it. It's like you have to, like, piece things together um, And then imagine taking that language and translating that into a completely new modern language. Okay, that is why, um, you know, English translations are very difficult. They're doing their best, but in a sense, they're uh, partially incomplete because we have to go back to the original language. We have to understand what was going on in the original language. So, yeah, our English translations, God bless the people that, that do this they're doing their best they can, but we can't always take things at face value. We need to do more digging, and also why it's a good practice to, you know, switch up the translation you read every once in a while. I've pretty much always read NIV, but I think NASV or ESV are, like, good different translations that are quite a bit different in how they approach uh, the original text. Anyway, all that to just say, just, just to help you understand the Bible a little bit more, you know, um, understanding the Bible takes some work to truly know the word of God and understand it. We need to uncover what the original writers were saying, not just what we read in English. Anyway, so like I said, you know, the NIV, which usually I use and read from here, says, have you experienced so much in vain? And I'm not totally sure why, which is why I'm showing you the NASB um, translation, because it just seems like that word um, experience is always... When I looked at the original language and tried to do some research, it's always translated to suffer, except for this like one verse in the NIV. But um, so I think suffer is what it's actually makes a little bit more sense and what it's supposed to be. So Paul is asking, you know, when we change that to "Did you suffer so many things in vain?" Paul is asking, "Was everything you went through was all that for nothing?" So to become a Christian in in the early church, and of course throughout history, this has been the case to varying degrees. It brought a lot of scrutiny and pressure and real persecution from the world around them that did not like what they believed. You know, we don't know specifically what suffering Paul is referring to, but he is asking, you know, was that all in vain? Was that all for nothing? And that's pretty strong words. So like what Paul is also conveying here is that the church doesn't just have some like problems that he's trying to address, but is on the verge of the path to actually losing their relationship with Jesus. Because he's asking, was that all for nothing? And he calls, you know, what they believe in earlier in the book of Galatians, he calls it a different gospel. So it's a very serious issue that Paul is addressing here. Okay, so verse five, let's let's keep moving. It says, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard? Okay, again, Paul's just emphasizing his point. You know, how do you receive the Spirit? Is it by faith? And or it is by faith and not works. Okay, so that's kind of the main verses about faith and works. So, like I said, we'll return to that at the end. But now we're just going to read through some of the other parts of this passage, and I'm just going to try to briefly give you a synopsis of what's going on. So, verse six to verse nine uh, shifts to the story of Abraham. And uh, I'm going to read all those verses and give you a quick rundown of what we should understand. So, it says, So also, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And he quotes from the Old Testament, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so at this time, you see Paul jumps to this uh, story of Abraham from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Paul's quoting from Genesis 15:6. 6. Um, so here, Abraham becomes the father of the Jewish nation. And in the chapter Paul's quoting from, God promises Abraham a child because he's old and childless. And then he promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And with that promise is also a promise of blessing and a promise um, to bring a savior to the world eventually. And that was Jesus. So Paul's point here is that uh, Abraham didn't earn righteousness through the works of the law that came with the promise or the laws that came after the promise. But simply, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, simply through faith. Okay, and this is a good argument for Paul because certainly uh, the Judaizers would have used Abraham as an example as to you know why these Christians needed to follow all the laws, especially in a culture where... Um, where heritage and family is just so important and valued, Abraham was highly regarded. To be Jewish was to be a son or daughter of Abraham, and that also carried God's blessing in the Old Testament. And like verse 7 refers to, Paul says, those who have faith are children of Abraham. That is Paul's argument. So from this verse, we can assume that the Galatians were convinced to follow all the laws of the Old Testament, probably in part because the Judaizers were just saying, hey, it's in the Bible, so do it, but also in part because they're convinced that they needed God's blessing and they didn't understand that 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 came through Jesus now. Okay, Paul argues in these verses, and you can look at verse seven and eight, uh, these verses argue that faith brings you into the family of Abraham because God always planned to open up that blessing to all the people through what Jesus did. So it's not that, You know, It's a spiritual family. He's not saying you actually become Jewish when you have faith, but just that now, that blessing that Abraham had, that the Jewish people had, is open to all people who accept it. So no matter the race, ethnicity, gender, social status, all can be adopted into the family of God through faith alone. Okay, those are those verses. Now the last five verses we have to cover. Paul's just like shooting off Bible verses uh, to break down the argument of the Judaizers. So let's read... All five verses, and then again, give you a quick overview. So we're starting in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, curses is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Curses everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay, so pretty much what Paul is getting at is that um, even though the law was good teaching, it gave uh, humanity this level that they could not attain. Because we're sinful, we're broken, we can't work our way to God. But instead, humanity was under, the sin, uh, was under sin and under the curse that was started by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then Paul's just emphasizing and backing up his argument with Scripture that faith is all you need to be saved. And, of course, this whole argument leads up to what Jesus did on the cross, and that was to take um, the curse of sin, which is God's judgment and a broken relationship with God, and death, and Jesus took that on himself, and died in our place as the perfect sacrifice that we needed to then be in right standing before God. So Jesus' perfect life gets applied to us. We can receive the Spirit, enter into relationship with Jesus. And now, like Paul says, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay, those are the verses... Uh, that I wanted to cover. You guys still with me? We're here, we're awake, we're alive. Okay, so I wanted to go through each of the verses to help you understand of, you know, what's, what's going on so that when you read it, you can have a deeper understanding of what God is communicating here. Um, but now, I want to get to the main part of the message, which, um, which is faith versus works. Okay, so let's, let's remind ourselves what verse 3 says, just to contextualize this discussion. Okay, so verse 3, we're going back. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Okay, so just like I said before, you know, the original work of salvation, that, that moment you accept Jesus, it's a gift and a work of the Spirit. So is the continual process of spiritual maturity. It Uh, is all a gift from God. It doesn't make sense to accept God out of faith and then try to work hard to earn it or become more like God from our works or the things we do. It doesn't work, and it doesn't make sense. You know, the the gospel isn't some, like, Instagram entrepreneur mindset where the earlier you wake up, the better person you are, which I don't agree with. And, you know, um, and just do, you know, do all these things and, be better, and then you'll be rich and jacked and famous, I guess. I don't know. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that if you try hard enough, you can be a better person or save yourself. So we already talked about this. We're, we're sinful. That's something we need to accept is that we are broken, and we could, as humanity, we could never earn our way to God. But even past the point of salvation, from the initial receiving of God's Spirit, you can't work closer to God from there. You can't earn more of His love because you already have it all. You cannot work your way closer to God, as Paul puts it, by the means of the flesh, by your own effort. You can't force yourself by sheer will to be more like Jesus. We can't do that. And you might think wait, aren't there things you can do to have a closer relationship with Jesus? Aren't there things you can do to be a better Christian? Isn't that normally what we talk about in church? Okay, yes, but. Those things need to be framed correctly. We need to understand our dependence on God through everything. So there's this famous Christian saying, um, and it is a lot of the time applied to prayer and how we pray and, and the importance of that, but it can also be applied to our spiritual formation and us trying to be more like Jesus. And the saying is this, without God, man cannot, and without man, God will not so without God, man cannot, and without man, God will not. And obviously, uh, this means you know, humanity or human, not men versus women in this case, of course. Um, so this saying is true of prayer. God is a God that is, that is alive, that reacts to what we do. That's his promise. He promises to partner with us and move through prayer. We shouldn't have this view that, that things are going to play out you know, however they are going to happen, and we don't have a say, because we, we do have a say. That's what God tells us, is that we can actually work with God to change reality. And I just, I just want to see our church take up that responsibility of prayer and to be a church that prays and a church that is dependent on God. I think that is a beautiful thing, and that is what we should do. So here's my plug, then. You have an opportunity to come tonight, 6 p.m., prayer encounter, in the Fireside Room. Come and pray, because without God— like the saying says, without God, man cannot. We cannot change people's hearts. And without praying and without asking, we cannot reach people. And without praying, I could talk for forever and not change your heart if God is not here working. And without us asking and praying, God will not force himself on us. He will not go where he's not invited and he won't force himself on humanity. So, this saying applies to, our, uh, to prayer and to also our spiritual life. Without God, man cannot, and without man, God will not. So, I'm, I'm reading this book on spiritual formation, uh, which just means being formed into the image of Christ. And the author stresses and adds, for the sake of others, you know, because our walk with Jesus should never be an individual thing that we just do on our own. Um, it's always in community and for others. And Anyway, this book is called Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland. And talking about spiritual formation and becoming like Jesus, he says this. He says, there is an, indeed an interrelationship between our doing and God's acting. But we must always realize that God, not we ourselves, is the source of the transformation of our being into wholeness in the image Of Christ. Our part is to offer ourselves to God in ways that enable God to do that transforming work of grace. I haven't finished the book yet, but so far I'd recommend it um, if you're interested. But this quote speaks to uh, the issue, like I said before. You know, aren't there things you can do to have a close relationship with God, to to be more like Jesus? And, And yes, but they must always be understood as the Holy Spirit being the source of that transformation and grace and not our own work, not our own effort. Okay, so we know that we can't earn our way to God, but still, what do we do after we have this relationship with Jesus? Where is the balance of faith and works? And this comes down to what many things in Christian theology come down to, and that is a balancing act of two things. know, a a tug of war between what feels like two opposite teachings. There's, There's a middle ground. And in our culture and world that's continually more polarizing, that middle ground is so important because that is what the Bible teaches in a lot of areas. So why is faith versus works even an issue in Christian theology? You know, okay, so we already talked about pretty extensively going through these verses how it is only through faith and God's grace that we are saved. So I hope that that's not under question. We got that. But then how do we go to other verses and reckon with them? How do we reckon with uh, like a James two fourteen to 17, which says, what use is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So, after having this discussion on how it's faith alone that saves us, and that is repeated through the New Testament, how do we reckon with these verses that say faith without works is dead? And that's just not like one obscure verse that's like maybe for a certain context. You know, we um, the teachings of Jesus also clearly back this up. The teachings of Jesus are clearly a call to love people and do good in the world. Jesus constantly taught his disciples to serve others, you know, make yourself lowest and serve everyone, just like when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, to his, yeah, to, to his disciples, he said, follow me. And not just to his small group of 12 disciples, but anyone who wanted to listen to him and have a relationship. He said, follow me. And that call is is. Not just like a kind of, you know, watch him, listen to him pray every once in a while. Like sort of a relationship of following someone on social media and you just kind of know them. It's, it's a call to take on his life and to do the things he did. Which is not just about doing things for others, but also following his example in everything he did. In, in prayer, in the way he lived, you know, with community and also having time alone with God and God and fasting, and living simply, and generously, and and all that stuff, we are to take that example and live that out, as Jesus is our teacher and our example for life. So even if Jesus never said, hey, do this specifically, but but if he did it and said, follow me, that's enough reason in itself to do the things Jesus did. But also, to back up Jesus' call to do works, we have verses and things Jesus said, like Luke six twenty seven. love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And of course, love is an action. When you love someone, you do things for them, for, the, for their betterment, sacrificing your own, you know, what you want and what is good for you. We have uh, the great commandment in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, which says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, like it, is this, love your neighbor as yourself. We have the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's a call to go and to do the work of Jesus. And there's no greater work and act of love than to share with others the hope and the life that is Jesus and to make disciples. John 14, 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. So along with many other verses, very clearly, those who follow Jesus should do his works. That is the calling of a disciple. And very clearly, also the teachings of Jesus is the fact that you just believe in him and you can be saved. There's nothing you need to do to earn that or to be good enough before you accept Jesus. Okay, but here's the issue. Like I said, there needs to be a balancing act. Because there are are big pitfalls on both sides. You know, one side, you preach faith alone for salvation. And that is true. But, you know, if you just, if you hammer that home or maybe, you know, pastors do that or you're listening to a podcast or you're reading scripture and that's all you see is that faith alone saves you and it's not works and you say that enough over and over, we start to downplay works because we don't talk about them. We start to downplay our role in our walk with God and then you can lose what the church is actually supposed to be which is a light to the world and a community that loves and serves each other and loves and serves others outside of the church. And instead of a loving community that reflects Jesus, we can be lazy. We can get lazy with our time with God, lazy with what we do for others. Or maybe it's apathy. We get apathetic to the hurt and the pain of the world and the things that Jesus wants to do. Or maybe it leads to selfishness or just a way of living that isn't the way of Jesus. Because, you know, I'm saved by faith alone. I'm good. We don't question the things we do. We just accept, yep, I'm a Christian. I'm good. I go to church every once in a while. I'm okay. Or, you know, maybe you are reading your Bible and praying, and that is awesome. But it can also become self-focused, an individualized form of Christianity that you don't share with anyone else. It's just you and God, which is also not the way of Jesus. There are so many issues when you focus too much on faith alone, even though it's a beautiful gift from God. And then on the other side, there's a pitfall that happens when you overemphasize works and all the things the church should be doing and all the things Christians should be doing. And you put this heavy burden on people's back. You teach people that they don't, you know, they need to do all this stuff, or they aren't a good Christian and aren't a good person. And we might that might not be said, but that is how people will feel when they always constantly feel like they're not doing enough. And then all the works and the good things people do is not out of love for God or others, but because they just, they want to be good enough. You know, maybe that motivation is shame. Maybe that motivation is pride and you want people to think you're good enough. Um, And, you know, but the driving factor is just, I want to be good. And then they abandon their relationship with, with Jesus for just moralism. And deeds, or they are so distracted by doing that they never allow God the time to transform their hearts and lives. This view also underemphasizes the necessity for God to be moving, for God to be in and leading everything we do in our whole lives. And instead, out of pride, we think we can do it on our own. We think maybe we can save people and save the world and be more like Jesus ourselves when that is Jesus, when that is what Jesus did. He saved the world, and will continue to do that. So it's, it's two very serious pitfalls on either side. Pitfalls that, that Christians have fallen into currently and throughout Christian history. And, you know, I don't know, honestly, where most people are at on this spectrum. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure, really. I can't really pick a side of what Western churches are, are leaning towards in this ever-swinging pendulum. You know, I, I don't know if we, Eaglemont, have Overemphasized one side or the other, and now you are feeling the effects of that. I'm not really sure. I I think I probably, in general, maybe see more apathy than I do people driven to do good works to be good enough, but it's also hard because I don't know if people are doing good works for the wrong reason. I don't know your heart, of course, only God does. But it's also, um, sorry, but I, I hope that we can all find this balance of of faith where we know that it's only through God that we are made more like Jesus and works, where we know that we are his disciples and his disciples will do his work. So what what both sides fail to do is is to pursue spiritual formation and a relationship with Jesus above all else. That is what both sides fail to do because if the faith side those who emphasize faith alone, faith alone, pursued that relationship, their heart would be transformed to want to love God and love others. And if the work side pursued that, that spiritual formation, the works they do would be um, out of joy and with a full heart, and it would be for the right reasons and not a heavy burden, and it would be a blessing to them and to others. So we must pursue the relationship with Jesus. It always comes down and back to that. And I want to encourage you to take steps to grow in spiritual formation. If you're not really sure how, you can always pick up a book on um, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are practices of Jesus that Christians have practiced since the time of Jesus and uh, um, are just amazing ways that we become more like Jesus. But they've really been missing in a lot of most Western churches, I think. In Western church as a whole. We've dropped some of these. And of course, prayer and Bible reading are at the center of those. Never devalue those. And, and uh, that is always at the center of spiritual disciplines. But there are other practices of Jesus that enable God to do his work in our lives as we, in obedience, just make ourselves available to him. Um, there's this book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, which was written in 1978, but is still just like the go-to uh, book book. For spiritual disciplines. So, I hope if you're interested that you check that out, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. So, whatever side you're on of this, what we need to remember is to just focus on Jesus every day, pursuing that relationship. But whatever side you're on, I just want to speak some biblical truth that will hopefully bring us closer to the center, to where Jesus wants us. And uh, yeah, of course, you don't have to, but if you feel like these words are, are for you, just pray. God, your will be done in my life. And if you want, you can bow your head or lift your hands as a sign of surrender, but, you know, you don't have to. But I just want to say some things that are just some biblical truth to each side. So, as we close today, if you might be on the side of of trying to work your way closer to Jesus, I just want to say your identity, because, you know, this work, this desire to work, can come from many different reasons, but maybe it's your identity. That's not, your identity is not in how good of a Christian you are or you think you are. Your your value is not in the people that you help or the things that you do. Your value comes from being made in the image of God. And your identity is a son or a daughter of the Father in heaven. Let your identity be wrapped up in the fact that Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. And now that you accepted that relationship, you are called a child of God and a follower of Jesus. And you do not need to do anything to earn his love or approval. You already have that in full. The weight and the burden of reaching people and wanting to see people come to Jesus is not on your back. It's not yours to carry. That is God's. He can do that work. He can only do that work. Now, you need to trust him. You need to take that step to trust that God will fulfill his promises. And you know know that you cannot save people. You know, whatever we try to build with human hands will not last and will not have eternal value. If God is not in the work, then it's all for nothing. So do not neglect the relationship of Jesus who will lead you into good works and be in those works you do. So do not work out of shame. Do not work to feed your pride if that's what's going on. Keep doing good, but let it be because the Holy Spirit has transformed your heart. To love God and to love others more. Make sure that it's rooted in a relationship with Jesus. Paul's warning against this pitfall is serious. And of course, the works that maybe we tend to do and that the Judaizers were were pushing were different, but it's still the same heart. So this pitfall is serious. He says, you know, do not believe another gospel, is what he calls it, but simply come back to Jesus in a relationship. Okay, and if you're on the side of of just focused on faith alone. Sorry, the biblical truth that you need to hear maybe doesn't sound as nice as the other side. But you know what? I think I fall on this side of the spectrum. I think I fall to apathy and I fall to laziness and I fail to do what Jesus did more often than I am too focused on the works. So I'm preaching to myself here, of course, always are. So maybe these words are for you. The Bible would tell you, do not be fooled into thinking you are a follower of Jesus if you do not do his works and do not do what he did. For genuine faith produces fruit and faith without works is dead. We are called to be the body of Christ and followers of Jesus, called to do what he did, to serve others, to sacrifice ourselves humbly for the sake of others. Do not be lazy. Do not be self-focused. Do not be apathetic to the hurt and the brokenness around you and in the world. And instead, Let God create a desire in you to see God move, to see his kingdom come, to see him work miracles in people's lives around you, to see him change the world around you as you obey him. Be encouraged that you can be a part of something far greater than yourself, something of eternal and infinite value. God can and will use you in amazing ways if you just make yourself available. And that starts with a deeper relationship. With Jesus, all that Jesus is asking is that you grow. No pressure here to be Mother Teresa within a year. All Jesus is asking is for you to take those steps forward as you walk with Him and allow that to change who you are and what you do. All that starts by obedience, making yourself available for God to do His work in your life. And as you draw closer to Jesus, then learn to do what He did as Jesus grows in you a passion for those who need Him. I hope that we all surrender to the will of God as we pursue this amazing gift of a relationship with Jesus every day. That is, that is our call. And that's my encouragement for you. And if, if you're here and you're new to church, and if you want to accept that relationship with Jesus, you can do that today. You can do that right now. You can start that journey of transformation into the image of Jesus, into a person of love, joy, and peace. And if you wanted to do that today, you can scan the QR code that's on the screen and that will allow you to fill out a form and one of the pastors will get in contact, you, get in contact with you, um, get you a Bible if you need, answer any questions if you have any and help you with the next steps in your walk with Jesus. And we'd just be so excited to walk with you in that and that is why our church is here, to see people accept Jesus and walk with him. So thank you, Yuma family, for opening your hearts to God's word today. Uh, let me just pray for us as I close. Jesus, we thank you, God, for your amazing gift that is a relationship with you, that is a new life and a freedom from sin and death. God, we take that and help us to know that